Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Bill Marion, the Air Force Deputy Chief Information Officer. Bill, welcome back to the program. Thank you very much. So there's a lot going on in the Air Force. We can talk IT modernization, network modernization, but I'm going to start first with some reorg news. Just in a couple of the last weeks or two, there were three. You went from the acting CIO to back to the deputy CIO. Talk a little bit about the reorg and how does it affect your office? So what we did in the Air Force was we reorganized the CIO, the chief information officer, the chief management officer from the deputy perspective, uh, Mr. Lombardi, as well as our chief data officer all underneath the undersecretary. Uh, so what we wanted to do was unify the IT network modernization business transformation space. Uh, so when you think data, you think business systems, and you think IT infrastructure all underneath one hat underneath the undersecretary. How big of a change is it for your office beyond your losing the acting title, but does it really change much, or is it very similar to what we're seeing maybe with the Navy? It's very similar to the Navy. That was the one of the strategic intents was to, to unify again across data, business systems, and IT. We know both from an operational perspective, we need to unify, and also from an IT implementation perspective. Tying data all the way back into the network was was very critical, especially when you're starting to get the next generation things like artificial intelligence and machine learning. And going forward, does it change your day-to-day responsibilities? It's not putting the CIO back in the back room. In fact, it's it's probably bringing the CIO front and even more because, as you said, you're tying the CDO and the undersecretary as well. Yeah, absolutely. I would, I would say it absolutely brings a, an elevated view with the undersecretary at the helm of the, as a CIO, CMO, uh, and really overseeing the chief data officer piece of it. So I think there's nothing but goodness uh, for the Air Force. The chief often talks about the network we need. It's all about multi-domain command and control and connecting sensors, uh, airmen on the flight line, air platforms. And so this understanding of the importance of data as a strategic asset, the network connect, connecting our sensors to platforms, and then all the change management around the enabling business processes. So, again, that's all unified in this construct, which is which is outstanding. Excellent. I know there may be some more coming, so we'll, we'll check back in with you when the time is appropriate. Let's talk about that network because the network modernization is a big piece going on. We hear that across uh, all the military services, but also all the civilian agencies. Talk a little bit about the initiatives around network modernization, including both the, the move to commercial and private cloud. The biggest two steps we have at the network layer, uh, the first is we we call it network as a service. It's under our, our umbrella enterprise as a service initiative. That network as a service was recently awarded uh, to two vendors, AT&T and Microsoft, to bring under other transactional authority new ways of delivering from the wall jack to the wide area uh, network. High speed, resilient, best of breed commercial capabilities uh, for our airmen. Uh, so that was awarded just recently. We're in the site survey process. We're we're rolling out with speed and agility uh, with those two offers and, and working through the OTA process. The other big one um, is is the push towards cellular and mobile. Uh, so we recently released an RFP to industry. The industry day is actually next week. We're trying to bring public-private partnerships together to allow the cellular providers access to our real estate uh, to extend their global mobile infrastructure with more, I call it five bars to the flight line, connecting our airmen from every facet from a mobility perspective as well. So those are our two network layer uh, components uh, that we're really focused on right now. Let me back up to the network as a service. It's interesting you guys went down the path of OTAs. Now, I know you're not a procurement person per se, you're your deputy CIO, but can, we, can you talk a little bit about why an OTA versus more traditional contract? I think there's a lot of anxiety, if you will, around OTAs. There is anxiety around it. Uh, we wanted the flexibilities. We are thinking about how we deliver network services in, in ways we have never implemented. So we will eventually, this is an OTA authority, that we go to full uh, acquisition processes after. 
Uh, some of them you can transition to production straight from the OTA. This is not one of those. So we will still have a full acquisition. But what we wanted to do was make sure we had the requirements and the processes and all the techniques around what we wanted to ask for and implement uh, through an OTA. This allows us a lot of dialogue with the two vendors to push and pull on price point to capability and really figure out how we ultimately build that requirements construct. I think that's great that you're able to clarify the fact that this is not a production OTA. This is a prototype, exactly what OTAs are supposed to be used for. So, and again, you just said you're just starting the site survey work, but what's the vision for this? Do you, when you talk about network as a service, what, what does that mean to, to from AT&T, Microsoft, and the Air Force's perspectives? Well, from a scope perspective, um, just to kind of bound that, six bases, a couple bases per vendor, again, push and pull on the requirements, uh, understand better what industry can deliver with I'll call it our security requirements in, but not necessarily all the techniques, if that makes sense. So the standards by which we all have to live by for security, but letting the industry deliver those in innovative ways. So as we all know, agility and speed is the new world order in security and risk management. Um, and so how do we deliver that kind of ecosystem at the network layer uh, is really what we're trying to push at. So, so a lot of this seems to be you saying, here's this is one of those procurements, it sounds to me like without having seen the statement of work or the performance work statement, is let's then result we want is a, a, a network that's agile, that's fast, that deals with the risks, tell us how you're going to get there. And that's where Microsoft and AT&T are going to come in and say, hey, here's how we're going to test it out at these three bases. And here's we're going to test this out at those three bases. And then you guys can decide what you like, what you didn't like, and then move forward. Absolutely. Uh, again, back to a traditional acquisition, go through two, three, four years of requirements and source selection and AOAs, and then it's kind of a, a proverbial, you know, throw the requirements over the fence and and they do some cost trade-offs. This is more collaborative, which is really what we're aiming at. How does that fit into with your cloud strategy more broadly? Now, there's obviously some movement from the Office of Secretary of Defense to move their stuff to MillCloud. There's some discussion around MillCloud 2 really gaining some momentum. Where does that fit in with how you how you guys are using the cloud currently? Absolutely. I, I would say we're, we're in alignment with uh, the, the DOD staff. It's not a crawl, walk, run. It's more of a walk, jog, you know, sprint uh, journey we're on. We're kind of in the jog stage right now. So we have what we call the common computing environment. We have 15 applications out in commercial cloud today uh, from a traditional infrastructure as a service. Our Air Force portal is our biggest implementation. Been incredibly secure. It's been incredibly agile and resilient and the accesses to get to it is is really world-class. So we've been very happy with that. So that's been our infrastructure as a service effort. We're also using uh, DISA from an enterprise consolidated enterprise resource planning system. So our HR, financial, and logistics applications, we're consolidating inside of a DISA deck uh, from a large-scale ERP perspective. So that's the other channel. And then the, the third channel of that is really your fit for purpose Think SaaS, software as a service. Our biggest effort there is what we call cloud-hosted enterprise services. That's our Office 365 award that we uh, we we let about a year and a half ago. We're now well over half a million users that have transitioned into that ecosystem. So, the short answer is hybrid solution, fit for purpose, infrastructure as a service with two commercial cloud providers, an enterprise information resource, if you will, environment with Office 365 and then a, uh, a consolidated ERP ecosystem with DISO. So we're kind of running the whole gamut from infrastructure, SaaS, 
on-prem, off-prem. And what we're really trying to do is, is justify the business case to the mission outcome. Do you foresee moving eventually a certain percentage to commercial cloud, a certain percentage kept in-house, whether through DISA or, or the Air Force's own kind of data center or, or internal cloud or some sort of – the hybrid, I think, will stay. I think no one, no one discusses that. But, but do you have a longer-term strategy about more commercial cloud? Or is it, again, I think you mentioned fit for purpose? The, the short story is the commercial implementations have typically reduced costs pretty significantly. Our current CCE work, we're seeing about a 4x reduction in overarching you know, application infrastructure costs. So we're seeing goodness there. We're also seeing goodness in the work uh, with DISA. So I, I, I just say it in the sense of we go through an app rationalization process. We try to think through the business case. Systems integration is very key. What data needs to be, you know, moved between the clouds. You certainly don't want one application in one cloud and another one when they're going to talk all the time together. Uh, there's different business reasons for that. So we're just trying to build a methodical. We want to narrow it down. We don't want a hundred different cloud providers uh, per se, but getting that to a suitable set, handful, if you will, of, of principal drivers that deliver value, and then we're going to rationalize based upon the use case. For time savings, I think that's incredible. Right now, when I talk to other CIOs, I rarely hear big-time cost savings. It's a lot of times it's, well, same cost, more capabilities, or slight cost savings, but more capabilities. Once in a great while, I hear, I hear more money, but more capabilities. Why do you think that you guys are seeing not only better capabilities, but agility, flexibility, but why also the cost savings? Is it just the legacy side of, of Air Force? It's a couple things I would say. In some cases, there's cost savings. In some cases, I would say we're, we're not saving money. It is about resiliency. The Office 365, you could argue it costs us more money than we spend today, but that's also because we haven't modernized those systems and put the investments in there to begin with. All the modernization efforts would have been above what our chess contract would have cost us. Infrastructure is a little cleaner because uh, typically that's on-prem, high-cost uh, work center areas. And then things like the ERP, it's almost at a cost neutral, but you really gain the efficiencies and of resiliency and agility in the cloud. So, uh, again, it's, it, it's not a one for everybody wants to make it either a cost or a security. I would argue in every use case it's a little bit of each one of those, some much higher than. You mentioned this idea of cloud sprawl. You know, you don't want necessarily 100, but then again, you also don't want, you have to have come to the right number. How are you guys dealing with cloud sprawl? Because it's easy for a, an Air Force base to say, we want our own cloud, or to move something to the cloud that they don't tell you about it, then all of a sudden you don't have 100, but then you start looking at things and go, oh, wow, we have 200. Is, cloud sprawl is a big concern. Tell me uh, what you're doing about it. Well, the, the common compute environment, we have what's called a managed service office. So that is our central clearinghouse. Uh, we're actually working policy right now to put a kind of a mandatory use piece of that where you have to coordinate through that office before spin can occur. Um, I think that'll occur before the end of this calendar year. Again, it's another synergy with our business uh, partner and DCMO uh, with the undersecretary. So that policy will then say, you must go through this. We haven't had a lot of sprawl outside of our domain just because it's been new, uh, but we know it's on the on the forefront if we don't get in front of it. But that managed service office and CCE office basically is our front door for all of these activities. So they actually run the chess contract, they run the CCE contract, uh, and then the front door with the ERP contract as well. Not to say there's not instances out there that we, we either know of or don't know of, but um, that synergy of Folks that actually help them in their cloud migration is is serving as well. One of the other initiatives you mentioned was around network modernization was cell phone and mobility. And you're looking at how to extend current 
to the bases. Now, maybe explain that a little bit more, what, what your hope is from that, what's the strategy behind that? Because if you tell me, well, uh, Air Force Base X, they, they should be connected already to AT&T or Verizon or CenturyLink or whomever. What are you looking for? I guess a simple analogy is when you, when you go to the airport and you get one bar coverage, you take that to an Air Force Base where five miles down the flight line, you may have no coverage. So yes, in a, in a geographic area, there's normally some kind of cell phone coverage. But if you're trying to do a technical order for an F-22 and they're trying to download that, you know, five miles down the, the road with connectivity that's another five or 10 miles, you just have degraded service. So that's a simple use case, if you will. And so what we're trying to do, again, I, I mentioned this is a public-private partnership. So this is us giving real estate, in essence, access to the commercial providers. They come in, it's against their business case, right, to d- deliver their ecosystem on an Air Force base using their investment dollars. So it's basically just giving them access like they would have access on a fire department you know, station to put up an antenna over top with the city government. But it's putting it on an Air Force base, allowing them access on spectrum, allowing them to deliver. Um, and then we get the benefit of, of raising from you know, maybe a half a bar coverage to a four and five bar. Because um, the big mission reason isn't just the executive use case to check your email. This is truly we are a mobile force by definition. The Air Force is a mobile force. And so we're trying to get security forces and recruiters and flight line technicians at every piece of an Air Force base, which is oftentimes a small city, access and, and ramping up the speed of access. What is the business case from the Verizon, CenturyLink, AT&T perspective? If why would they want to put a tower or some kind of connection five miles down a runway unless if you know, Airman X or Airwoman Y is going to be checking their personal phone, but they're already on their network. I mean, help me understand why they would do it if you if you're able to. But I think it goes in the context of everybody lives with their phone today, right? So that airman having access to their own personal email at the end of the flight line, as well as their technical orders, is, is absolute in the vision. So things like uh, I always call it, bring your own approved device to allow government access to government data, but also access to your personal things, your, whether it's email or a phone call to your, your spouse. So the business case for them is really around extending coverage and getting more subscription and having happy, happy customers. It's why they put cell phone towers where they put them. The business case for them is we have bases with 10, 5, 15,000 people on them. And so the better coverage, better user experience uh, certainly comes back to the Verizons and AT&Ts and Sprints of, uh, of improving that. We have to take a break. My guest is Bill Marion, the Deputy CIO of the Air Force. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jason Miller. My guest is Bill Marion, the Deputy CIO of the Air Force. You've mentioned a lot of as a service. We talked infrastructure, platform, software, but the other big one is enterprise IT as a service. This is a major initiative that I think harkens back, if you will, to the old seat management days, if you remember that. Or uh, I think those are the times where, where there was uh, the NASA had their big Odin contract, ATF had the seat management. Uh, and this has been pockets of success under the old ways, but this seems maybe a new approach to maybe talk a little bit about enterprise IT as a service. I know pilots were awarded in September. Enterprise IT as a service is really a logical set of programs. Uh, so you think of the first line was the network as a service. So that's the wide area down to the wall jack, if you will, or to the mobile connection. You have the information space, which is the chess contract, think Office 365. That's how do we bring in a, a cohesive cloud-based information re- resource environment together. Then you have the cloud environment, which is really an as-a-service model, right? Um, it's, it's compute and store as a service. Um, and then ultimately you have the desktop management 
seat management. Uh, I'm calling it desktop as a service, uh, kind of a Gartner term, but it's really help desk, seat management, give give a device, make sure it runs, whether that's a mobile device, a tablet, a web-based client, thin client, or a regular desktop or laptop. Um, so when you think of kind of ITAS as a, as a logical thing, those are the big pillars. Um, you got a network pillar, a device pillar, a cloud pillar, and enterprise services pillar. So the pilots were awarded in September. You're just kicking off. Can you give us an update of where you're at with those efforts and what's the long-term plan? So the network as a service was the first increments release that we mentioned earlier. The next set uh, will be going down the desktop as a service pillar. Can't go into any timelines uh, for that. Um, that's for acquisition partners to go through. But that, from an operational requirement, we're going down the desktop as a service. So the AT&T and Microsoft, that was part of the enterprise IT as a service initial pilot. And then, as you said, desk, desktop is next, just to put a finer point on it. Yes, the, the AT&T and Microsoft was the network as a service pillar, the network pillar. Okay. Okay. Because uh, I know that I think there's a lot of interest in the enterprise IT as a service. Can you do it? How does it work? I mean, again, I, I hearken back to seat management, but I think things have progressed quite a bit since back in the late 90s, early 2000s. Let's shift also over to cybersecurity a little bit, a hot topic, uh, no matter where you're at in the government, and the move to enterprise risk management. And what is your strategy in terms of cybersecurity and as it applies to dealing with enterprise risk? Well, this really ties into some of the cloud work. So if you if you think about all the work we do against the old DICAP, I mean, all the controls, the 900-plus controls and the documentation, my contention is it's really about continuous monitoring, understanding your inventory, remediating your inventory, and then making sure you have some kind of compliance review, the continuous monitoring, versus a very paperwork-centric, scan-centric, I'm done, I have my accreditation, I, I live for three years, right? So what we're doing, and this is something we're going to get done before the end of this calendar year, is the policy that's going around what we call a fast-track ATO and RMF Next, which is, and we're doing this in on the regular AFNET today, putting sensors, we call it advanced remediation and detection sensors, that allows us to inventory and remediate very quickly. We had a great success with the WannaCry in minutes in that scenario. And then the compliance piece is where you, you probably see in the, the trade bug bounty programs, pin test programs, hack the Air Force, hack the Marines, uh, that work with Defense Digital Services is very key to this. So that's the kind of loop back process that says, okay, you think you know what your inventory is, you think you can remediate. This is kind of the uh, validation step of a pen tester, a bug bounty person coming into that same system and going, yep, it's still good. And then I, I equate it to the USDA meat inspection process. It's the one I use, which is you don't inspect every piece of meat, but every piece of meat can kill you. You inspect the process. If the process is clean, then you've got a secure system and you can respond in the case of an event. So the second piece of that to that same tone is under Kessel Run, which is how do you build an accreditable platform so this is the same USDA you know, meat inspection process, a software factory with repeatable processes that you certify versus the specific application by application, the specific meat package by meat package. The whole idea with that, right, is if you're building strong code, two-person review code, you're testing, you're mediating, you're pen testing, all of that in a cycle, when you publish code, it should be secure. We actually did a a validation of that, and we found that to be very much the case. And so that's the other leg of it is not just the RMF accreditation process, but also how we build software at the, at the beginning. 
So fast track ATO, that's the nirvana, right, of cybersecurity for the government in many ways. Today, it takes how long to maybe get code or at least get a system ATO'd. And when you say fast track, uh, I've heard of the you know immediate ATOs. I've heard ATOs in a day. GSA's 18F talked about an ATO in 30 days. What's the Air Force's goal? Well, again, it's, it's almost like anything in IT. It just it depends, right? In the process for like Kessel Run, we believe it's it's really ATO in a day because you're continuously baking in security, the proverbial bake-in security. Your platform's secure, you're using accredited cloud infrastructure, you're using accredited software tools, and you're going through two-person you know, integrity rules with respect to code generation. I think that's very much what we're doing today. We actually implemented it already. What we're trying to do that is put that in higher-level codified policy you know, for scale. On the other front, whether it'll be a day on the you know, kind of ATO in a day or an RMF next, it, it definitely ought to be in the sub- you know, weeks and days category, not in the months. I would contend what I hear from the field is it's about an eight to 18 month process. One of the angles that I, I push pretty regularly is in most cases, if not 99% of them, the new system is more secure than the old system. But yet we wait eight to 18 months before we implement the new system because something might happen. And so we're trying to change the risk paradigm. It's, it's kind of like patching. You know, something may happen when you upgrade to the next Apple iOS, but everybody pretty much doesn't test it anymore, right? We know that it's going to be more secure than the old version because there's known vulnerabilities. So we upgrade and then we see if there's any issues and remediate. It's kind of the same paradigm, you know, go with the new code, triage if something breaks versus the old days where it's like, well, let's test till the nth degree when we don't see anything, then we'll upgrade. That's just a, a known risk posture that we just can't maintain. It's the old, don't let perfect be the enemy of good. If you know that you're you know, 80%, 90%, 95% there, let's figure out the other 5% and not worry about the 5%. Kessel Run, talk a little bit about that. I know it's, it, it's a great name. Everyone loves the name. You know, It goes with the Star Wars theme that we keep seeing from TOD. Yeah. But maybe talk a little bit about that process and, and what you've seen from that effort. We've seen nothing but success so far. Um, again, it, it is a scale issue. We've got smart airmen that know how to write great code, just not enough of them. So we've synergized those folks with DIU and, and bringing the team together that can, one, from a skill set. The second one is using the, the next generation of tool sets. Stop pushing them back into legacy code you know, factories. Put them in the newest skill sets and, and let, them, let them go and run with it. And I would say the third piece of it is this repeatable process piece of it. We can't get them bogged down by RMF processes and other security processes that aren't relevant. Let's give them a playbook that makes that code not only applicable from a mission perspective, but it's secure and agile and we can trust it. So you, you gotta kinda I mean when you think Kessel Run, it's really those three building blocks. I put it from the skill to the uh, to the application to the security that have to be weaved together. And and now really the focus of the team is how do we how do you keep scaling that up to the hundreds and hundreds of applications. Um versus the tens of applications that we're kind of encountering right now. How much of the Air Force's code or software do you guys do internally, and how much are you bringing in from a commercial standpoint? And I know that's maybe hard to say percentage, but it seems to me that there's a big push for commercial solutions, use more commercial. How does the commercial world, and maybe the better questions, fit into this idea of ATO in a day or this idea of fast-track ATO and RMF? Especially on the business system side is getting back to a commercial applications with configuration changes, not customization changes. Uh, so the work that uh, my, between myself and Mr. Lombardi and the business portfolios, very much so, you know, 99 times out of 100, it's the commercial tool with configuration changes. 
It keeps us up to, up to date from a security perspective. It gets us the latest capabilities. Um, we let industry kind of do the R&D cost of that, and we get the benefit of the, the capabilities that come out. So that is absolutely the new world order. Well, not new. I mean, we've been doing it for a little while. But uh, when you look at like Air Force Integrated Pay and Personnel, it's a configured commercial system. It is not what we would have done five years ago of custom building an ERP. But, but I guess the question is if, if I'm – vendor X and you're using my software and you've reconfigured it, what goes through that ATO process? Because for me to get on your network or even for me to put it on my cloud, you still need it to be ATO'd in some way So because it's going to hold government data. So how are you using this new approach from that Kessel Run showed how well it can work to apply to commercial? Yeah, absolutely. I I wouldn't say we have all those business processes down, but that is exactly it. So if it's if it's a tool set that we use in the DOD or even in the Air Force today and you haven't changed it and you're, you're using it on a secure cloud ecosystem that's an IL-4, IL-5 certified, run with it. We don't have all the processes behind that yet, but that is exactly what we're, what we're itching at is take that commercial solution, put it on a secure cloud configuration that we, we deliver you and, and go off and run. That's where the ATO in a day really comes in because it's, you know, what, what else are you filling in the blanks on except your own data that you that is your own risk within your functional portfolio. Bill, I know we're almost out of time, but uh, I just want to make sure we touch on one last thing. When we've talked before, we've, we've had great conversations about training and education of, of airmen and civilian and, and airwomen. Can you talk maybe a little bit about what's the latest with your focus on training and education and, and specifically around cybersecurity? In the cyber domain, it's all about agility. In the old days, we used to, you know, send the airmen through the entire cycle of training, whether they were uh, an expert that came from Microsoft that came in to to wear a suit or or a uniform, or if they were a junior airman that's a cross-trainee from the political science, you know, arena. That was our end-to-end training. So some people were very bored. Some people were very excited because they were at different levels. What we're trying to do is um, it's called a continuum of learning of how do you you break out all the training elements. It's very much what you see in the colleges and universities today. To, to really give the right training at the right time. So modularizing the training, I'll call it preemptively striking the training. So we have computer engineers that don't need to go through the first three weeks of a course, but they want to go through some of the advanced concepts. Uh, and then there's airmen that need to go maybe one or two steps back from the intro course to get them. It's, it's all about the right training at the right skill level, right? It, we call it the continual learning. The other side of it is um, the agile airman model, which is not just pipelining everybody through a schoolhouse as their first step and then they go into a job. In some cases, it's put them in a job, feel out where their skill sets are, where they're, I I went through this personally as an intern for the first three years of my Air Force career. It was do this job for six months, do this job for six months, and then ultimately you're outplaced into a permanent position that says, this is kind of where I want to be in software or computer security. So it's a variant of that in the agile airman model, which is Put them into the job areas, see where their skills and expertise is, and then how do we maximize it with additional education and training? The, the other angle that I would say outside the specific education and training is also how do we build the next artificial intelligence, machine learning, data scientist? It's a skill set that I think the federal department is challenged with all around. So our service secretary has increased her investments in uh, what we call the Premier College Intern Program, which we're seeing huge success from. You know, How do we go and hire and recruit? the next cybersecurity expert, the next uh, AI expert straight out of the colleges and universities. Bring them on as interns. Not a new program, but the level of investment is what's new. And so she has drastically increased in a good way to feed that STEM talent uh, into the Air Force. 
Um, and, and again, we've we've seen nothing but huge successes there. So you got the traditional education and training, then there's also what's the seed corn and the fertilization that we want to do from the colleges and universities as well. One of the things that the Air Force has been ahead of a lot of the other services and really a lot of the rest of the government is around cybersecurity and the training. Are you guys seeing that benefit today? It takes a while for somebody to get to speed. It's like acquisition, right? I mean, you, you don't come in as a you know level three with a huge um, ability to, to buy you know $5 billion programs. But it's been, I would say, you know, five, seven, maybe 10 years since Air Force really focused on the cyber training. Are you seeing those benefits? I, I think we are. Um, I think it just goes into the, the mass and scale of the problem. Um, it's not just the network security more. It's industrial control systems, which is relatively, that's not even an eight-year-old problem as much as it is a one- or two-year-old problem. National critical infrastructure, our, our concerns around the electrical grid and somewhat steeped in that area. But again, all of these are the, the scale problem is what gets us in security. Unfortunately, though, we are out of time. So let me thank my guest. Bill Marion is the Deputy Chief Information Officer at the Air Force. Bill, thank you so much for taking the time today. Yeah, thank you very much. We have to take a break. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jason Miller. In this part of the show, we hear from Kevin Cox, the Program Manager for the Homeland Security Department's Continuous Diagnostics and Mitigation, or CDM, program. He sat down with reporters at the recent Symantec Government Symposium. Let me just start with the news this week was around the FISMA guidance and the specifics around CDM. It's pretty clear that it's the whole goal was maybe more flexibility for agencies. But from DHS's perspective, I know you've seen drafts and we're part of writing it and talked with OMB. What's it mean for you guys, the FISMA guidance generally? So one of the things that we uh, as a program, the Continuous Diagnostics and Mitigation Program, uh, really wants to get shifted to is the, the idea of the requirements for the program. Rather than coming out with specific solutions, we want to make sure, first and foremost, we know what those requirements are. And then we want to make sure that we're working with the agencies to understand what those requirements are and to, in the long run, meet those requirements. So we worked with OMB to really keep it requirements focused, uh, make sure that uh, it ultimately benefited the agencies as well, uh, so that they had some uh, a memorandum that they could take to their components and their offices and say, hey, we all need this at the agency level, we need it at the federal level to understand what our enterprise looks like from a cyber perspective. And so that's really what we, we worked with OMB on, is to keep it requirements focused, give the agencies the, the leverage they needed, and then give our leadership the ability to get full visibility across the federal enterprise. One of the things about the, the change is this idea that agencies can either use existing tools or go outside the CDM program and buy tools that potentially would still meet the same goals. Is, do you think that has come from a frustration that we've talked about this before with the with the slowness or the at least the perceived slowness of CDM? Or did it come from a just a logical, pragmatic, hey, if you have it, why, why reinvest? Right. I think it's a little of both in terms of the, the time it took to deploy solutions particularly for components within agencies or even the agency as a whole, when they had something that overall was meeting requirements and the, the need to come in and replace that with something else just didn't make a lot of sense. It was not, not necessarily good from an investment standpoint uh, nor a, a timing standpoint. Uh, the other piece is that we want to keep the focus on the requirements. We don't want to have perception that we're focused on a particular solution uh, we want to make sure the requirements are the, the remain the focus, and if the agency can show 
that their solution meets that re those requirements, then back to the first point, we, we will take the data from that system to meet the requirement. And the other thing, the, we don't want, and I think at times there was a perception that CDM was coming in to rip and replace entire solutions that were working. We, we don't want that to be the case. A key for the CDM program is the partnership, not only with the agencies, but also the integrators, to get the right solutions for the agency, make sure that the, everything interfaces for communications purposes, and that the agency gets the visibility they need, and federal leadership gets the visibility they, they need to ensure the federal enterprise is secure. Cox was then asked about current and future changes coming to the CDM program. One of the things that just for the, the general public to know is that we're shifting our, our language from phases to capabilities. So with the phases, there was this real sense that with a phase, you're going to hit a point where it's done. And when's that phase done? In many ways, asset management is never done. Identity and access management is never done. So we're looking at it as a, a broad capability set. And then we want to make sure that the core capabilities in place, and then as new users come on, new devices come on, the agency can continue to bring those pieces in for the full visibility. So with Defend, originally prior to Defend, each of our task orders was written to one of those phases, like phase one, which is now our asset management capability. We did a specific task order just for that, that phase. With Defend, it's wide open. So it allows us to focus on the original phase one work, asset management, the original phase two work, identity and access management, as well as all the new work we're doing with network security management, originally called phase three, and data protection management, which was phase four. So we have a lot of flexibility to defend to support agencies in any of those areas, any of those capability areas. We have to take a break. In this part of the show, we hear from Kevin Cox, the program manager for the Homeland Security Department's Continuous Diagnostics and Mitigation, or CDM, program. He sat down with reporters at the recent Symantec Government Symposium. I'm Jason Miller. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jason Miller. In this segment of the show, we continue to hear from Kevin Cox, the program manager for the Homeland Security Department's Continuous Diagnostics and Mitigation, or CDM, program. He sat down with reporters at the recent Symantec Government Symposium. One of the things about, as you move forward, is uh, there was an interesting discussion at the Symantec event around CDM and filling some gaps. Mm -hmm. And uh, the gentleman from Booz Allen spoke about filling some gaps in the um, phase one and then, fill it fa and then dealing with credential and privilege in phase two. Can you talk a little bit about those capabilities? Are you seeing anything trend-wise around gaps from phase one and then anything around credential and privilege that you're seeing around phase two? Mm -hmm. So with the original phase one, the asset management piece, uh, when we're talking gaps, a lot of it is around uh, individual bureaus and components within agencies that weren't original participants of CDM. So we want to work with the agencies to make sure that they can work with those components to get the CDM solution set, whatever that might be relative to that agency, in place so that that component gets the visibility, the agency gets full visibility now across their entire agency, and then we get the summary data up to the federal level. Let me just jump in. Okay. Why yeah. wouldn't a component be part of the main agency? So if we let's pick on HHS, I'll pick yeah. on them. Why wouldn't FDA, and I know I'm sure they're fine, but yeah. NIH, why wouldn't they have been part of it initially? If you told me a smaller microagency, okay, maybe. Right. But why wouldn't, do you have a sense? Yeah, so that, that goes back to the first question. With the original CDM memorandum from 2014, it, it did not 
have the strong enough language to say every single component had to participate now in CDM. So there were certain components, for example, that were upgrading their data center, and they just didn't feel that they were positioned well. There were some labs in certain components that weren't, they had whatever the reason might be, but they weren't participating. So now the, there's been, not only from a, an authority standpoint, but I think the way we've approached CDM has shown to the agency that it's not us, DHS, coming in, working to take over your network. It's us partnering with you to get you solutions that you haven't had in the past and, and give you benefit. And so we've seen a, a number of components that weren't originally participating coming in with the idea that this isn't so bad. This is, this is a partnership. This is DHS being able to help us get some capabilities we haven't been able to do in the past. And then real quick on credential and privilege, are you also seeing what, what's some trends you're seeing around those capabilities? Sure. Yeah, so coming back to that, credential management uh, has been really uh, a great success in terms of being able to align with the active directories and other mechanisms that the agencies had in place to bring that credential data centralized for the agency to see. So that task order, the original cred task order, is wrapping up in the next few weeks. But there's just some... Uh, remaining gaps there in terms of there were a couple agencies that already had cred management solutions in. Uh, so that's where we started to say, if, if they meet our requirements, let's let them use that solution, but we need to interface that data up to the dashboard. That work is part of the gap for cred, cred management. Priv management is a little different story. Priv management, we're deploying privilege access management solutions on a system-by-system -system basis. And so there's a lot more entailed with that work and to be honest with you, we just didn't have the runway to get that done in a two-year task order. And so that's the nice thing about Defend is we can pick that up. Cox was then asked about DHS's process to get agency feedback on CDM's plans and processes. We have regular conversations with the agencies with each of our – so all of the agencies are grouped into Group A through F. Uh, a through E are the CFO Act agencies. Group F are the non-CFO Act agencies. So with each of those groups, we have a – portfolio team that interacts daily with that each of the agencies in that group. So we're having ongoing conversations with the agencies daily. We also have a customer advisory forum where all the agencies come in and, and we, we share what's working, what's not, so that we can get the program better. In terms of the uh, within Defend, our request for service process to uh, define work for the agencies, we, the program, have defined a certain set of initial priorities for FY19 and starting to get that finalized for FY20. So we've brought that in our communications with the agencies, a sense of priority to them and timeline to them, and then making sure that ultimately we'll work given all the other agency priorities. And generally speaking, everything's aligning well. Uh, so once we get the buy-in from the agency that they're ready to, to go forward with this, then we work with them in the planning of how to execute that work to get it in place at the agency. We also keep the door open for the agency to come to us and say, okay, CDM, you're not approaching this particular uh, capability for two years. We've got some funding now. We really have a gap here. But we'd like to do our own RFS, and we've got our portfolio team able to work with them to get that written up, give the technical direction to the integrator, and start into that work. The request for service, uh, I've heard, has been very popular in the early part of Defend. Are you guys able to keep up? Are you, are you finding that there's a dirty word backlog? 
I'll be transparent here. Yeah, we're we're starting to that point where the backlog's starting. Uh, we're starting to see um, a little bottleneck in terms of the number of staff that we can put towards it. So we've been working with our leadership to get approval to bring on additional staff to the program. The team that we have is just really outstanding in terms of being able to put all the time and effort that they they need to to get this stuff across the finish line. They can only do so much, but but really blessed with a, a good team that's really hard driving to to get these solutions in place and, and reduce that backlog as much as possible. Three things. How is the backlog in terms of time or numbers? How many people are you hiring? And isn't this up to the contractors now? Isn't it up to them to start the request for service? Isn't basically a task order against the defend contract? What's your role? So how many people, how big, How? what's the backlog? And then why isn't this the contractor's responsibility versus DHS? So let me take the last question first. So one of the things that we've conveyed to within our house, uh, to the agencies and across the federal government, is at the end of the day, we, the federal government, have the responsibility for requirements. So we need to make sure we DHS, we the agencies, are defining our requirements before we go to the integrator and have them come back with a proposal. What we don't want to do is say, integrator, define our requirements for us because what gets delivered may not meet what we actually need. So that's something that we've really worked to introduce discipline with our own program as well as across our interactions. We, government, need to define those requirements. So that's why we can't say Booz Allen, CACI, come up with something here. We, we want them to help with that, but we need to get the requirements right first. But, but you have a request for service. So an agency is saying, I want whitelisting capabilities. Yeah. Then at that point, shouldn't the vendor just be like, okay, let me look at your network. Here's what I recommend. I mean, maybe I'm simplifying it. We, we get to that stage, indeed. But the, the thing we, we want to make sure, too, beyond the requirements is that uh, what we're writing with the request for service is contract language. It's, it's technical direction to the integrator. So we, we don't want to just say integrator, come up with a, a uh, event management solution and not have any specificity to that because what gets delivered may not meet our requirements, may not get the agencies what they need. So that's why we really need to be d- disciplined in terms of holding to the requirements, making sure we write that contract language well, but at the same time partnering with the integrator to help come up with the right solution for the agency. Now in terms of timing on, on our the backlog, a lot of it is just volume right now. We've got all the defend uh, task orders in place, so all the agencies are coming to us with uh, ideas for RFSs, and then we have our own core RFSs. So that's what's causing, we're starting to see some some backlog. But I think overall we've got good management on it. It's not like we have a tremendous backlog. It's just we've got some slowdown. And then in terms of uh, what we're looking to do, we are in the final stages of approval for our overhire process. Uh, so we're looking to bring on uh, 30 additional government employees to help uh, with the staff. That's all the time we have for today. My guest was Kevin Cox, the program manager for the Homeland Security Department's Continuous Diagnostics and Mitigation, or CDM, program. He sat down with reporters at the recent Symantec Government Symposium. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. 